This morning I'd like to continue in our study on the nature and perfections of God. Gave you a review last time of a three-part introduction that's on the website. Kind of boiled it down to less than an hour's worth of introduction to get us into it. And this morning we want to look at one of the perfections of God. I prefer perfections over attributes. You can call them attributes, but when we think of attributes, you and I have attributes as well. But when it comes to God, His attributes are perfect. So a better description is that they are perfections. And last time I gave you that introduction, so we were talking about... The incomprehensibility of God last time, remember I mentioned that? And what we mean by that is apart from God revealing himself to us, there is no way that we ever get not only an accurate picture of who he is, but even a good picture of God. So unless you go to the scriptures where that revelation is found, then your viewpoint of God is distorted it's an unbiblical and an unreal view of who God is. So I gave you some details on that and some of the scriptures that indicate that. And I also mentioned that there are some attributes that are hard to conceive of. And we're going to look at a couple of them, one this week and one next week, that we would classify as incommunicable and we said they're incommunicable because when God created man in his image, he communicated some of these attributes to us. So part of the image of God reflects some of these, in God's case, perfections, and in our case, attributes. Now sin, as a result of sin entering, sin has damaged the image of God such that there is some distortion there because of sin in all of the attributes. But those that he's communicated to us, we get a little glimpse of what God is like. But there are some that we call incommunicable that he reserves only to himself. And because he reserves them only to himself, they're not as easy to, to understand and to discern. In fact, we would never come up with these apart from uh, revelation, apart from what Scripture teaches. The one we're going to look at this morning is called self-existence. And the reason this one is hard to conceive of is because we are the very opposite of what God is when we speak of his self-existence. Another incommunicable attribute is omnipresence. God is everywhere all at once. Without dividing himself up, he's everywhere. We call that omnipresence. That's also kind of the opposite of us. We are localized. I'd like to look at immutability. We'll do that probably next time. God does not change, which again is hard to conceive because we change every second, every nanosecond. God does not change. He does not develop. He does not learn that's God's immutability. Fourthly, God is eternal in that he has always existed and always will. In fact, he exists out of, outside of time. We are confined to time, and it's hard for us. In fact, we cannot even conceive of an eternal state because it's different from time and it's outside of time. 
And that's how God exists. Now, he's given us, what? Eternal life, but it's a gift. We have a beginning, and eternal life is a gift in our case. He's infinite. We are very, very much finite. So these are the clearest, I guess you could say, of the incommunicable attributes. I also mentioned last time, if God is incomprehensible, that means that there are some attributes that he's even chosen not to reveal. So there are some things about God that we may never know, and some of them we may get a further glimpse when we go to be with him in in eternity, but the scriptures do not describe any of those, but we could assume that if God is infinite, then he has other things about him that we perhaps don't even know about. So the incommunicable attributes. So we'll look at the first one, self-existence. Let me introduce it by asking a question. What are your most important or most basic needs? Air and water. Air and water. Okay, you're looking at my slides, huh? Oxygen, if you will. We require oxygen. You deprive yourself of oxygen for most people more than a minute, and what happens? Unconscious. You go unconscious, and eventually you cease to breathe at all. You die. So we need constant oxygen, constant intake. Some people with more capacity, lung capacity, can go longer than a minute or so, but most people not much more than that. We also need food. We need sustenance to maintain the uh, growth of cells and obviously the growth of our body and also the utilization of energy. We need constant input of energy. We also need shelter. This is what we're hoping for today, right? Now, we don't want to sleep in that, but if we had to, we wouldn't live too much longer as well. So, shelter, basic needs, and we need these on an ongoing basis. Some of them, moment by moment, others we might be able to endure longer periods of time. So, conceive of God with no needs, That's self-existence, or at least the main aspect of it. Now, our common thoughts concerning who God is, if we were to think and describe God, we might have several distortions that would come up. And in fact, a lot of believers believe some of these distortions because they don't have a biblical picture. And certainly the unbeliever would probably come up with all of these and think that God is helpless without us. Yeah, right. Oh, my. In fact, some churches kind of give you that impression. You have to go out and evangelize. Otherwise, the unbeliever won't (laughs) hear the gospel, won't come to know God. And you get the impression that unless we do evangelism, no one would come to know him. But how did uh, the Apostle Paul come to know Christ? God revealed himself to Paul himself, and you have examples of others, perhaps people like Abraham as well. So God is not helpless without us. In fact, he does not need our evangelism. Mm -hmm. He does not need anything about us. There are others. Can I just insert something? Yes. Because it was so encouraging. It's exactly what you talked about. At BSF this week, there was a lady who 
gone to the Revelation through John. Think about it. Non-Christian goes through all of those. She comes up to Romans, and she's just been fighting. She's kind of been waffling with God, doing all this different stuff. The Lord came to her in a dream, and he said, I have chosen you. Wow. And that was the end of the whole thing, and she accepted the Lord. And um, she said, well, I'm not going to come to the Lord. Until, I'm not going to do this until my husband has to be saved first. Hmm. And he's seeing such a difference in her that I don't think it's going to be very long. But it is exactly uh-huh. what you're saying. God is not limited by anything. Can you imagine? Uh-huh. I just thought, right. it's today. It's this week. It's like, you know, yeah. he is there. Exactly. He comes to her, and he revealed himself. And he says, I have chosen you. It just sent shivers. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. That's great. Thanks Good. for sharing that. Yeah. Another distortion, God is frustrated and <laughs> unable to get man to, co- to cooperate. Sounds like a Sounds like the church, that, right? <laughs> a lot of pastors, a lot of church leaders have that sense. You know, I, I pray, I preach, I teach, and I just, it just seems like God's not doing anything. Uh, <laughs> he can't seem to be working. It goes along with parenting, too. Parent, parents as well, yeah. yeah Another really... distortion, the world is out of control. <laughs> God can't control the world, right? Uh-huh. Well, it goes against another attribute, his sovereignty, but uh, these come from a faulty idea concerning who God is. Everything is taking place just as God has preordained it. Now, he does not... Desire sin, but in in the end, he will use it ultimately to his glory. Mary Lee. I was going to say that I think that many Christians would say those are wrong generally, but when you come down to where the rubber is meeting your road, yes, that many of them would have those feet, those um, least feelings, yeah, feelings, and, and mm-hmm. struggling with that. That whatever mm-hmm. needs to be fixed, it's not and God's not doing anything, and nothing is happening. So he's powerless or unconconcerned or... All of the above. All of the above, exactly. So let's take a look at this concept of self-existence. And the first thing is that God has no needs. He does not need our evangelism. He does not need our ministry. He does not need us. He does not need our fellowship. He has no needs. So God has no needs of anything, absolutely nothing. And there are many passages that at least imply that. There's no statement. Well, probably Acts 17, I'll show you that one. But in Isaiah, you, you get the impression from the questions that are asked. And in Isaiah 40, 13 through 17, the question is asked, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? The answer is no one directs God. No one gives him instruction or direction. Or as his counselor has informed him, can anyone give information to God? No, that may be God. That's right. No information because what? He is omniscient. omniscient. He knows all things. So no one informs God or guides him or counsels him. Passage goes on. With whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? Again, along the same lines, we have a parallel line that basically says the same thing, adds the same idea. So you have two lines. This is poetic. And it goes on. Verse 14 goes on. And who taught him 
kind of a third parallel line who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. See the parallelism? Same idea, but the implication is no one, and therefore God has no needs for insight, for for teaching, for understanding, for consultation, for information, for direction, because God has no needs. Then verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop. In other words, we don't add anything to God. So if you can imagine 7 billion people on the planet are like a drop, a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck, a little tiny speck. Here's a speck. That's all of humanity, all the nations like a speck. In fact, nations there, you might even say all the Gentiles or all the peoples, like a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. So all of Hawaii, just a little dust on the table there. It goes on, verse 16, even Lebanon is not enough to burn all of the forests of Lebanon. They're not going to help God. They're not going to warm him up nor his, his beasts enough for a burnt offering. You can add all of the beasts of the earth. It's not going to add anything. And then this is a surprising statement. All the nations are as nothing, zero, as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. How can something be less than nothing? It's hard for me to conceive in comparison to a God that has no needs, the nations can add nothing to him. They're as less than nothing. In the New Testament, you have Acts 17, 25. Paul is speaking to the Athenians, Athenian philosophers. They have a different worldview, and he's correcting their faulty worldview. And one of the things he deals with in that context in verse 25 Their worldview was that uh, there were many gods that we serve and we offer offerings to because they demand it. Apparently they need it. And what does Paul say? Nor is he served by human hands. Nothing we can do to add to him. We can't serve him as though he needed anything. There's the clearest passage that speaks of God having no needs. He needs nothing since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. In other words, everything comes from him, and if everything comes from him, that implies that there's nothing that we can supply back to him to add anything to God. So God has no needs, no needs of the universe. He did not have to create at all. So there's nothing in the universe that adds to God. No need for angels, yet he created them. So he has a purpose for them. He has a purpose for the universe. No need for believers. No need for you and I. Part of what we said at the very beginning. God has no need for fellowship. Within the Godhead, there's plenty of fellowship already built in because of the Trinity, the idea of a Trinity. And there's love within the Godhead. So there's no need for fellowship. He's totally complete in himself. So there's no need for any ministry as well. And I'm going to conclude by kind of putting ministry and evangelism in its proper perspective in relationship 
to God. We'll look at that as an application. So self-existence, first of all, tells us that God has no needs. It also has the concept that God is uncaused. He's the creator of all things. And when a child or an atheist says, well, what caused God? The answer is he is uncaused. Everything else has a cause except God. He's the only one that is uncaused. And this is captured when God reveals to Moses at the burning bush. Remember, Moses is away from Egypt and God reveals to him and is going to send him back to Egypt. To He also reveals that he will bring the children out of Egypt. And Moses asks him, well, how shall I describe you or what shall I tell them about you? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's a statement of self-existence. In other words, I exist in myself, by myself, without anything outside, uncaused. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. In other words, the self-existent God. And by the way, the, the name Yahweh comes from this verb idea of to exist. And the idea of self-existence, I am. That's the whole idea of the Hebrew word there. And Yahweh comes from this idea of existence or self-existence. And if you remember in the New Testament, Jesus on several occasions claimed the same thing. And he did it in a variety of ways. We'll mention that in a moment. Remember, he, uh, well, the first place that I think it occurs in the Gospel of John is with the woman at the well. He identified himself as I am. Now, the text translates it, I am he, but that's an addition to the text. He's basically claiming to be Yahweh that revealed himself to Moses. Mm So we have Exodus 3.14. We also have John 13, verse where he says, I am. For, For now, or from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Ego emi is the Greek in that context. I am, and you can add God. I am Yahweh. I am the self-existent one. In fact, in most of the The claims that he makes, for example, he said, John is implying in all of these, for example, I'm the bread of life. It's ego a me, which is identified with I am of Exodus 3.14. He also says, I am ego a me, I am the light of the world. Jesus is claiming to be the Yahweh that revealed himself to Moses And in this case, he is the one that illuminates the world. Light comes from him. The source of light is him. Source of sustenance, the bread of life, comes from him. I am the door of the sheep. Ego emi. In other words, access to the Father is only through the self-existent Christ. The ego emi, Christ. I am the good shepherd, adds to that same idea. I am the resurrection and life. 
life resurrection originates in the self-existent God, in Christ himself. 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, life, but truth as well. All revelation comes from him. Doesn't come from the mind of man. 15.1, I am the true vine. In every one of these cases, the little phrase, ego emi, that uh, John ties back, I think, to Exodus 3.14. John 8.24, for unless you believe that ego emi, I am, unless you believe that I am he, is how it's translated, you shall die in your sins. So this is a recurring theme in the Gospel of John. And 13.19 is probably the key of all of them there. You see this in the book of Revelation 1.8. And it's Jesus claiming again, Ego Emi, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He is eternity past, he's eternity future. He's the beginning of time and he exists beyond the Alpha and the Omega. And there's other passages you could look at as well. So he has no needs. He's uncaused because he is the creator of all things. And thirdly, he is self-sufficient. Self-sufficient in that nothing holds him together. Nothing maintains him. And that's the reason that everything is dependent upon him. Because he is self-contained and self-sufficient in himself. A good passage would be Colossians 1.17. Everything is dependent on him. He is self-dependent. Colossians, he is before all things. In other words, he's eternal. And in him, all things hold together. Nothing holds him together. He's self-existent. So everything is dependent on him. And if he was dependent on something outside himself, he could not be the one that holds all things together. Similarly, Hebrews 1.3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Every electron in the universe is maintained by God. Each orbit of every electron, each functioning of every atom, each functioning of every molecule is directed and controlled and maintained by the self-sufficient and self-existent God. So you have two verses there that at least imply and certainly indicate that everything else is dependent upon God himself. When we speak of life and life coming from him, it's different from our life. Different from our life. His life is self-existent life. John 5.26 tells us this. For just as the Father has life, how? In himself. We don't have that kind of life. God has life in himself. We have life as a gift. We have life that is dependent. We have life that comes and is derived from him. Jesus goes on, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Christ did not derive life from Mary. He is self-existent. 
Now you could also say he is pre-existent. He existed before Mary, before he was born in a manger, because he, in fact, is God himself. So he also has self-existent life. Now our life, like we said, is is supplied to us. It requires support. So all creatures derive their life from a creator. God is the creator and uncaused. So life is self-existent in him. There's several other passages. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. He's living, and that life, as John tells us, is self-existent. We also have Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. So he has always lived, and he has always lived in eternity. He's everlasting, and that life is self-existent. Psalm 36, 9, it's a prayer back to God, for with thee is the fountain of life. In other words, all life is derived from him. All life comes from him. In thy light we see light, so things come from him. And this is a recurring theme in other places where the living God is, in, is contrasted with dead idols. Idols are dead. So self-existence involves absolute life. It also involves independence. God is independent of the creation. God is separate and distinct from the creation because he is self-existent. He existed when there was no creation. Now, this is unique to Christianity. Remember, we've mentioned that all the other philosophies, all the other religions, and I've used the example of the Egyptians, their gods were part of the creation. They believed in the sun as a god. They believed the Nile was a god. They believed in creatures. They even worshipped uh, frogs and, and insects and snakes and all kinds of creatures. They worshipped them because their god was just part of the creation. There was a uh, commingling, you might say, of the God and the creation. This was true of the Roman pantheon. Their gods were part of the creation. And you can go down the list of Old Testament cultures as well. The Bible is, is different in that the Bible says that God existed before there was anything. So he's not tied to creatures. He's not tied to the sun. He's the creator. In fact, on day four, he creates the heavenly bodies, including the sun and the moon. So God is independent and separate and distinct. That's self-existence. A good passage would be Daniel 4. It implies it at least, 4.35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, similar to what Isaiah says. But he does according to his will. In other words, he determines everything. He does whatever he wants. Now, your children would like to do that, but you need to remind them they're not self-existent. <laughs> they're dependent. But God can do that. 
because he's self-existent. He does everything according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand. You can't stop God from doing what he wants to do. You can't stand in the way of God. No leader can do that. And this is in the context of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, aren't these the words of Nebuchadnezzar? Recognizing he was the sovereign of the world, and he came to the realization that uh, there was a greater sovereign that does his will. And then the passage goes on, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what has thou done? We can't question what he's done, because he's independent and he does whatever he wants. And Psalm 115.3 says exactly that. For our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And fortunately, he's a good God. And fortunately, he's a gracious God. And in his will, he has determined that he would call people to himself, undeserving people, that's grace, and that uh, nothing is going to stand in the way of him calling and bringing people to himself, just as Karen pointed out earlier. He also decreed that we, we would fight with sin the rest of our life. Yep. He permits to us stop. to That's live so, within must, sin. Mm-hmm. Must be some. Yeah. And he is going to overcome sin. He wants us in the meantime to overcome, utilizing our volition, But whether we fail or not, if we truly belong to him, we will, in fact, be glorified, part of his will. And as Linda puts it, even more so, part of his decree. All right? So, that is the God of the Bible, a self-existent God that has no needs, that is uncaused, self-contained or self-sufficient He's a God that is also independent and has life in himself. Well, where do we come in? Let's look at some applications that pertain to you and I. This is part three. This is application. When we view ministry, we need to underline the idea that it is his ministry. And we need to emphasize and think in our minds that We simply have the privilege, not because God needs us to do anything, but he's giving us the opportunity and the privilege to serve him. This is part of his desire. This is part of what he has orchestrated, you might say, in terms of structuring culture and society and our part within it. But notice, uh, and let's look these up. Let's uh, somebody look up uh, Acts 1427. You got that one, Connie? And someone, someone, Connie, why don't you get the 21 as, as well? Read uh, 1427. And somebody look up Esther. You got that one? All right. And who wants to do Ephesians 210? You got it? Acts 1427. You got it, Connie? And when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. Now, this is Paul after the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas, re- they've returned after the journey, and they're giving a report for the church. Go ahead. Um, all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door to the Gentiles. All of the first missionary journey, God was doing it. All that God had done. Not what Paul and Barnabas had done, but all that God had done. 
And that's this is not the only verse. There's another one at least, and there's others as well in the book of Acts 21.19. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. What God had done amongst the Gentiles. Paul was just an instrument. Paul was simply God's means of doing it. God could have done it without Paul. God could have done it on his own. God could have raised up somebody else. And that's true of our ministry as well. What God had done. Now, the book of Esther doesn't ever mention the name of God. This is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. But what is very clear throughout the book of Esther, through these little hints like this passage, God is acting behind the scenes to accomplish the salvation of the Jewish people in that period of time. There was a kingly decree that all of the Jews are to be killed. And there's a queen that God put in a position, and this passage describes that position for this occasion. You want to read it? Esther, this is Esther 4, 13 and 14. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther. This is the queen. This is Esther, the Jewish queen. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. Okay, she is Jewish. She happens to be Jewish in the king's palace. The decree of the king is to destroy the Jews because Mordecai knows that she's there because God has put her there, even though he doesn't mention it. Go ahead. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. Okay, God's going to bring it somehow. So he doesn't need you, Esther, but go ahead. But you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. And she acts on that. And she becomes God's instrument to be able to change the decree such that the nation of Israel survives in that period of time. So that's an illustration of God working quietly behind the scenes. God is working in our culture. He may even today, and I'm inclined to believe that he is using a Trump who may not be even a believer much like he did a Cyrus in the Old Testament when Cyrus opened the door for the Jews to return to the land. And that would imply that we have as believers opportunity to take advantage of the freedoms that we still have. What about Ephesians 2.10? You got that one? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You get that? And notice where 2.10 fits in in the chapter there. Starting in verse 1, Paul talks about our deadness in our sins and our trespasses. Can anything dead accomplish anything or do anything? No, it's useless. But God, gracious by grace, has saved us. And it's through faith, not because we deserve anything, And then we get, in that same paragraph, we get to verse 10. Read it again. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. In other words, he created us, not only physically, but now he has created us with a new nature by saving us. And then what? 
created in Christ Jesus. For a purpose. For good works. So this is a privilege. And the last phrase there. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Okay. God prepared beforehand. So God is the one behind what he wants to accomplish. And he has put us in a position to be his instruments if we are willing. Now let me give you an illustration. A few years ago, several now, I guess, when my mom was living in the house, I was doing a lot of repairs and all kinds of stuff to get the place ready. And she has a granddaughter, (laughs) cute, but can she paint? (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I did was I built a picnic table for my mom and needed to paint it. And when I do stuff over at her house, and if Emmy was around, she liked to be involved and do stuff and help. You know, she liked to help. (laughs) Well, in reality, she was in the way. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But because this was important for her development and for her growth, I would give her a little brush, and she would paint, and she was happy, and it gave her joy to realize she was helping accomplish a task for grandma i would have got it done faster uh, with less spills less problem less effort if she had gone home to her parents (laughs) spoken like an uncle yeah (laughs) not like a grandparent (laughs) but it was also a joy to me to just see the joy in her and the excitement to do something for grandma to contribute if you will that's kind of the attitude that we have. We're, we're little Emmys that sometimes just get in the way more than what we accomplish. But God desires us to be involved in the process because it gives us joy. Not necessarily because it necessarily does anything to contribute to him, although he uses it. He could do the same thing without us and get the job done more efficiently, faster, better but he's chosen to use us. That's the attitude that we have in ministry. So it's our privilege. There's an additional piece to that. By our being involved in the ministry he is doing, we come to know him better. And that's that's the big objective. Yeah, and we experience the joy of serving him and the fulfillment that comes with seeing him use us and the accomplishment that he accomplishes. So that's the proper perspective of ministry. I think it's a very practical thing that comes right out of God's self-existence. He has no need for us in evangelism or any ministry at all. So it's our privilege. He doesn't need our money. He's the creator of all things, but he can use our resources. And he's called us to give back to him. He doesn't need our time. He doesn't need our fellowship. He is self-contained. So that's what that next slide says. And dot, 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 anything else that we think we contribute, we add nothing to God. So ministry is an instrument. So we approach it in humility. We approach it with awe. In other words, the great things that God is going to accomplish, the great things that God wants to do amongst us in families or within the church, and it also calls upon us to trust him to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. 
And somebody look up Romans 12. Go ahead. You got Romans 12? Well, let's, yeah. Before Romans 12, you want to read, uh, look up Philippians. Philippians 1.6. Here's another verse. Another verse that adds to this idea of God doing the one that ultimately performs all ministry. Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will effect it until the day of Jesus. He began the work, and he's going to complete it. Skip to chapter 2, and also Dwayne 12 and 13. Here's a, an interesting juxtaposition of our part and God's part in anything, whether it be growing in Christ or whether it's in ministry. Read 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, how much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation? What? Salvation by works? Well, I think salvation in this context is the broader idea here. It includes the whole working it out unto glorification, you might say. But it's not us doing it. Keep reading verse 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both to will and to work. He's the one that is accomplishing anything that is produced by us. You got Romans 12. Read the first three verses. You're familiar with the first two, but I want you to notice verse 3. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service worship. Stop there. A Jewish audience thinks of a sacrifice, and what do you think of as a Jewish person? Yeah, you think of the temple, and you think of an altar, and you think of an animal, and you see the blood flowing from the neck of that animal that has been sacrificed. It's a bloody mess. It's a dead animal that's sacrificed. What does he say here? Present yourself as a living sacrifice. In other words, we live, but we're a sacrifice. That sacrifice is given to him for God. We give ourselves to him, but we're alive, and now we can do things and not be dead. Keep reading. Read, read verse 2. And do not be this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Say, prove the will of God is that which is good and acceptable. In other words, it's just a display to the world what God desires, mm-hmm. what the will of the Lord is. When we give ourselves over to him in whatever area, whether it be for service or simply walking with him. And then read verse 3. For through the grace given to me. Grace. Grace. Undeserved. The grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Okay. God has allotted uh, faith. Now it goes on and it's going to talk about spiritual gifts. And it's through ministry and the spiritual gifts that God is going to utilize us. But the text says, not to think too highly of ourselves, it is God who has allotted these things. Everything comes from Him. So it's a privilege to serve Him. We don't do it out of obligation. We do it out of thankfulness and awe, actually. And we trust that He will accomplish it. So it's not by compulsion. It's not by pressure. It's not out of guilt. A lot of people minister out of guilt. I have to do this. 
but it's a privilege and it's an opportunity. Closing slide here. Are you an available instrument? Who wants to close for us? Bill. Father God, just grateful that you've chosen to involve us in your work. You don't need us, but you've chosen to do your work in our era through us. And we're grateful. You've chosen that so we'll get to know you, to experience you doing through us things only you can do. We are so grateful for that. We're so grateful for your overwhelming love for us. Would you send us out this week into the lives of others? There are many, many hurting people out there that profoundly need to know you. Would you use us as tools in your hand to reach a hurting world for Christ? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, we'll look at immutability.